This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hello. So this week we're continuing our interviews with fund managers that you guys wanted to hear from with James Anderson at Scottish Mortgage Under the Spotlight. We're also talking about savings rate cuts, what the biggest risks to savers are and we'll touch on what Apple's been up to. So first, Dan, what's been going on in the markets? It's very hard to understand what is going on in this markets. Stocks are going up and gold is going up. Oh, that doesn't normally happen. Yeah, they don't normally go together. They normally move in opposite directions. Gold has just exceeded $1,600 an ounce, which is sort of high for quite a while. Um, Normally, people buy gold when they're worried about everything. Um, So it's very strange how shares are going up as well. Apple is quite a good example. So it, it, it came out with this warning saying its earnings weren't going to be as much as people thought because of. Um, the coronavirus has disrupted supplies in China and also Chinese stores um, have seen disruptions as well. So fewer people out shopping on the streets Yeah, well. but the, you know, you, arguably this is not a surprise to anyone. Um, we've been talking about it, uh, we talked about it on the podcast the other day, about how um, supply chains were very much at risk and yet Apple's share price just kept going up and up and up. Now it sort of it fell a little bit on the news, but not really what you'd get for you know a, a profit warning. You'd normally see twenty percent fall um, when someone says they can't meet earnings expectations. It sort of sort of just limped a bit to three percent. That was it. So yeah, it's very strange. So I, I had a look to see what's kind of going on um, so far this year among the big companies listed on the London Stock Exchange. You've had Raw Mail's down 20%. Um, you know, that's just over a month. That's a, that's a huge that's loss. That's a massive loss in a month. Same for BT. Uh, wow. Marks and Spencers is down 15%. So you could suggest there's some very wild swings in here. But also those are all quite UK-focused businesses as well, aren't they? Yeah, and they've also... It's very company-specific in terms of they've got... They have problems that they need to overcome. Um, you've got... There's this really big company that runs hospitals in the Middle East called NMC Health, which is not a household name in the UK, but it's a very big company. Um, that's halved in value. but that's there's a, Is that a corona fallout? No, not? not at all. This is a, um, a bit of a shambles about what's going on. They had lots of people last year saying, we sort of question your accounting and stuff like that. We think you, you know, there's a bit some dodgy things going on here. Um, now they don't know who owns its shares some of the directors of sort of uh, what yeah it's it, I mean, it, it's it's really difficult to understand so a third of the board of directors have now resigned because they're it's not never quite a good uh, sign so it's, it's all all sort of going very weird but there are examples of um some stuff shooting up upwards so Novasite, which we mentioned previously on a podcast so um up until about six weeks ago no one in the world have heard of this stock it does some pharmaceutical healthcare stuff. Um, its shares so far this year up more than a thousand percent. It's developed a coronavirus test. Mm. So um, Laura Ashley's shares have been plummeting because it's got lots of problems. It's kind of running out of money. Um, but the one that's really caught my attention, it's listed in America. It's called Virgin Galactic. So this ah, is Richard Branson's the space 
Yeah, company. quest to go into space. <laughs> <laughs> so it since December, it's gone up by more than 300% in value. Um, but it must be a pretty small company that's got pretty volatile share price, right? Yeah, so it, it sort of... Uh, got together with another company and sort of officially started trading on the market last October. Um, what it wants to do is, yeah, say it's to send a little vessel that will hold six passengers and two pilots into space and back again. Would you um, go? Would I'm, you go into space? I'm not so sure. I, I, I get sort of travel sick on um you know those that w- whenever i go from london to manchester and you go on the, the sort of the virgin ah, trains the pendolinos that sort of go the, yeah they uh, are. fall on one side uh, every time sort of they're twisting and turning i'm feeling very travel sick i think space so travel's not for you that's then. what i i've come to that conclusion that i might not feel very, very well <laughs> um but yeah virgin what, what they want, they want to, it's 15 minutes from launch up into space and back down again so it's not very long and you get a sort of a couple of minutes of feeling weightless um but it's two thousand well, it's, it's a quarter of a million dollars for a ticket <laughs> for 15 minutes yeah so they've got they've got about awesome. 600 people signed up to do it including leonardo dicaprio and your favorite laura justin bieber to them, though, a quarter so, of a million is probably what about two quid is to me, though. So I guess it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah, but it's, you you think it's fifteen minutes is not very long, isn't it? It's, it's like an extended um, trip on a roller coaster around um, a theme park. Also, my <laughs> least favourite part of flying is the takeoff and landing, and I feel like that is all you're doing in that taking <laughs> off and then immediately landing. So <laughs> I'm not. I think I'm out. Well, I thought it's a bit weird that Leonardo DiCaprio is very sort of uh, real sort of um, supporter of green things environmental mm, campaign so what about spending a lot of money on sort of aviation fuel um that would pollute the atmosphere going up and down 15 minutes into space it's not you know what would so Gre- thinking, greta wouldn't like that would she you're thinking the next thing they should come up with is a solar powered space <laughs> shuttle <laughs> i don't know i just thought a bit of a hypocrite to sort of someone who's like really pro environmental stuff and then wants God, to sort of leave leo alone spend all trying to have fun. <laughs> so i mean the company's now worth nearly six billion dollars so if you sort of assume it really you know a company that to have that rating should be on trading on 10 at least 10 times annual profit um it's going to have to do sort of 600 million yeah because it's not even done at one flight it keeps getting delayed doesn't it yeah the, it's not, not, launch flight. not so done i can one. see how maybe that valuation could be justified if it was actually running and it was collecting what would that be a couple of million or a couple and a half million per flight you can kind of then see it but for something that hasn't even launched yet or safely got people out and back again. Yeah, so I don't, a bit speculative. Oh, I don't know. Richard Branson's going around telling people he'll announce soon who he's going to take up on the first flight and it will be this year. And so maybe just people getting excited. I'm just wondering why the share price is sort of shooting up, but it is going to the moon. Um, well, you could say that, but <laughs> when will it come crashing back down? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the markets are, are very, very, very strange at the moment. So we'll, we'll see what... Um, you know, when the coronavirus um, seems to be under control, so what will that will do to the markets? Next? Immediate reaction to that, I guess the more volatile reaction to that seems to be dying down now. But I think now what we're going to see is when company earnings comes out for this quarter, the impact that it's had on various different companies and the kind of shutdowns and, and whether that's had a big material impact or not. Yeah. And, you know, normally the, the stock market should be pricing in a disruption to earnings for companies in China and particularly companies that do business with China or source their goods from China. Uh, and that is a large number of companies around the world. Um, it just doesn't seem like they're particularly, you know, that's those risks are being priced in at the moment. So um, certainly when we talk to fund managers, they don't seem to be 
too fearful at the moment. And you, you'll hear that in, uh, later on in this interview when we talk to James Anderson from Scottish Mortgage. He, he'll give his comments on that as well. So now closer to home, the regulator, the FCA, launched its list of concerns and areas of focus for the year. So initially that sounds uh, a bit boring, a regulator coming out with a, a list of areas of focus. But actually it kind of spells out how society is changing, how money fits into that, and some of the kind of big risks that might be facing us or that are on the, the radar of the FCA. So Dan, you've read the entire 80-page report. I know. Um, can you just give us all of the main points? I was reading it on the train last night and I could see all the people uh, surrounding me thinking, wow, what an amazing document you've got there. They <laughs> yes, were clamouring yes, to read yes. it over your shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was really interesting. It was, it was talking, it, uh, we won't go through all the themes, but it was, it was definitely talking about things like um, what's happening in the world of insurance, like the difference between uh, if you've um, been a customer for a long time versus the deals you might get as a new so customer. So the loyalty penalty, yeah, I so guess, that we've talked about before. So the, the, yeah, the, the regulator's trying to clamp down, make it a bit fairer for everyone. Um, and there were three things that sort of stuck out for me. The first was housing market, about how it was making the point that fewer younger people are actually owning property. There's this big gap between your average income and, and sort of the house prices. So um, it seems that first-time buyers need to spend about five times their earnings to get a sort of an average price house. If you went back to 1990, it was below three times. So you know, that's a that's a huge jump, isn't it? So Yeah, and we talked about this recently, didn't we, in a, a few episodes ago about kind of getting on to the housing ladder as a first-time buyer without the help of the bank of mum and dad and yeah. how it is harder now than decades ago. And the FCA was sort of pointed out that you, you can now get quite long-term mortgages, sort of 30-year ones, mm. um, quite easily. But it says what whilst obviously that sort of spreads the money out over a longer time and potentially helps people get on the ladder, it's still slightly worried it could lead to sort of a higher debt burden for for some consumers for a longer time. Yeah, completely, because I think a lot of people take out these long mortgages when they first buy a home with the intention that when they come to remortgage, they'll reduce that term down gradually. But if you don't end up doing that, then you end up being forced to carry on working past the point where you'd like to retire because you've still got mortgage debt to pay. Yeah, I mean, another point it was making was about... Um, you know, rising life expectancy, actually, which is kind of linked. So they were saying that the, the Generation X, which is people born between 1966 and 1980, um, finding themselves in a situation where they're having to support their ageing parents and so perhaps pay for their sort of care. Um, but they've also got increased costs of bringing up their own children as well. Now, th this sort of group of people um, haven't really benefited as much from auto enrollment for as long as millennials so that's the idea when you're in if you're working your your employer automatically puts you into a pension scheme mm. so um and they probably a large bulk of them missed out on some of the lucrative final salary pensions that the previous generation yeah saw. absolutely so, so they're kind of squeezed in the middle so yeah. no one really talks about that generation though do they everyone talks about baby boomers and millennials or not mm. really anything in between yeah so poor old generation x so of which i'm one of them so you may send send me sort of cards and sort of small gifts to say sorry for <laughs> <laughs> i'll be doing no such thing as a millennial <laughs> um so the other thing that was really interesting was the fca was pointing out an increasing cashless society so the problems that that might cause to people so i, I certainly know you go to the shops quite used to just hitting um the machine with your debit or 
sort of credit cards mm. and just contactless payments. I was trying to think, you know, what, do, do we really need cash? But actually, there's nearly two million people in Britain who don't have a bank account. So they do need... That is amazing. When you think there's, yeah. what, 60-odd million people in the UK, that's actually quite a high proportion, isn't it? That's very high proportion. So th- these people clearly need sort of notes and coins to pay. Also, I think... There's a danger. We both live in London and surrounding areas. There's a danger. I think that you're in. We're definitely in that London bubble of everywhere we go, even the local corner shop accepts contactless payments and accepts cards. And then I know that when I go and visit my parents who live much more in the countryside, if you try to pay for something that's three pounds in the local corner shop on card, a lot of them the cost would be too high for them and, and they wouldn't accept that. And I know that my parents always have always carry cash because they think it's it's nicer to pay with cash than always pay with card whereas i i'm like the queen and never carry cash (laughs) (laughs) well this there's some sort of clear pros and cons of if we were in a cashless society because um on the con side imagine if you know if all the computer systems weren't working um how would you pay for things because you haven't got a coin as a sort of a backup. Mm. Um, and we've seen that before with more bank-specific stuff, haven't we, where banks have failed or app-based banks have failed or the big problems with TSB where people can get into their bank accounts and at that point cash looked pretty good. Yeah, I mean, there's a, 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 perhaps at most extreme, if you if your bank account was hacked by someone and they took all your money, essentially drained your account, What you know, you know, again, you've got no way of uh, any other money to pay for things. Um I think people might also find it hard to control their spending. So if they can't physically see money and work out, okay, say I've got um, £10 in my wallet or purse, and when I've spent it, I know that's it. But you, you, perhaps with you, if you're just relying on contactless payments, you, you don't really keep control. You know, it's tap, 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 and you, and you sort of pay the consequences when you look at your perhaps your bank balance at the end of the month. And particularly, I think that's the case, um, lots of parents talk about that with their kids these days, don't they? That it's much harder to teach their kids the value of money because it's not so common now to give out pocket money in kind of cold, hard cash and put it into a physical piggy bank. Mm. It's much harder to kind of convey that when everything you pay for is on card for your kids. Yeah, but I mean, in terms of a pros of a cashless society, I was reading some stuff saying that it would be there would be less money laundering because there'd always be a, a yeah. paper trail. Um, potentially lower crime. There's no tangible money to steal. Um, less of a black market, I guess. Yeah. This and this is, if you if you travel, or you travel a lot, Laura, so if, it's, it's easier currency exchange when you go abroad, um, potentially. Um, less time as well, costs associated with handling money as well as storing, depositing it. You know, poor old things like G4S, the vans turning up with a guy with a, a big visor and um, chained to a, a big bag of money, taking it in and out of a shop. You wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't need that anymore. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting. Thing. And actually, as, as we're recording this podcast, it's, it's the concept of cashless society is all over the, the papers as well. Again, there's a, a campaign at the moment, sort of trying to put pressure on the government to sort of really look at this hard. Um, you know, the, the, at the last year or, or 2018, it certainly was about 11 billion cash payments. In, the, in this country, that's forecast to fall to 3.8 billion in 2028. So that's a huge drop. So clearly there's expectations. I can well believe that. Yeah, expectations of falling. And, and of course, there's loads of cash machines closed, being shut down. Mm. And so you know, if you are reliant on cash, um, it is getting increasingly difficult to, to access your 
your money really so i had a flavor of this on holiday so um where we were the the kind of island we went to um there was only one cash machine in the capital and we were traveling outside of that so we had to actually sit down and work out for the week how much cash we might need because most places didn't take card and kind of budget it out and then take out the right amount of cash because there just wasn't a way of physically accessing cash and it just felt such a a foreign thing to me because I'm so used to just being able to use a card everywhere you go. And do you feel feel worried that you're if you're holding loads of cash then for the week, what if you lose it or get stolen? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't really think about that. You're careless with your money. Yeah, just <laughs> littering it around the streets. <laughs> it was more I didn't want to take out too much and then not spend it, but also didn't want to be caught short. Yeah. Tricky. <laughs> So on to Scottish mortgage. This is perennially popular with investors. It always seems to top the list of most bought investment trusts. Um, it's not surprising that we've had quite a few listeners contact us, ask if we could talk to the company and um, its fund manager, James Anderson. So if you're not familiar with this fund, it invests in um, stocks like Amazon, Tesla, Airbnb and Spotify. So we managed to grab some time with the fund manager earlier this week. So let's listen to that interview now. So we're here with James Anderson, co-fund manager of Scottish Mortgage, a £9.3 billion investment trust which describes itself as a way for people to access the world's most exciting growth companies. So James, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Um, so Tesla, people have been questioning your decision to hold this stock for a long time. Uh, yeah, you're the one who's looking smart this year with a, a huge share price rally. Do you sort of feel vindicated with having sort of stuck with it or do you think people perhaps just didn't understand it properly in the past? I firstly think that one ought to try and take the emotion out of it. It's very easy to get caught in games of calling people smart and less <laughs> complimentary descriptions uh, and I'm not sure that helps. I think it has been profoundly misunderstood and that bothers me in the sense that I think our society, our media, our investment landscape prefers to obsess about failure rather than celebrate potential success at a huge scale. I also think that in this case it's very clear that it would be better for the world if Tesla succeeded. But you know, we've we've tried very hard to work with the command company and communicate with the company uh, through periods of difficulty. So I'm delighted for them more even than for us or our shareholders. Okay. So as a result of that rally, though, it's now become it's the biggest holding in the portfolio now, isn't it? So at what point do you decide to take a profit with with Tesla? Well, what we try and do with every single stock in the portfolio is have a probability-adjusted upside and rank all the portfolio accordingly. We don't think there is one outcome that is going to be certain, and we think that's one of the things that we differ from most market participants. But we also think that all the evidence is that companies that are successful these days they open up a broader set of opportunities, they have a greater probability of more success. So we think you need to be very careful about cutting back exposures. Now, we've had this situation for several years with Amazon in the past, and the broad guidelines are that we think that a holding of around 10% is acceptable, but we've tended to cut back without giving any projections precisely what we'll do in this situation. Um, take our time on it, but th that's about the level we're, we're happy to in general and our risk parameters exist for. 
What shape was Tesla in when you first made investment? Was it still just at the concept stage? Uh, well, <laughs> we're talking, what, about seven years ago, and the share price in mid-20s at the time we started, as opposed to um, around 800, depending yeah. on the mood of the market, <laughs> only one, one, one day. Um, I, I'm intrigued by your question, because at one level, I think the company had actually already changed a lot because you could see that they'd managed to make, if a luxury sports car, but a car that was electric, that was competitive with the external um, uh, traditional car industry. And I think that by demonstrating that, the company was further on than people thought it was. And I think the subsequent challenges, though intense, were in a sense manageable um, against that background. So I think what we've seen is the ability to scale, but that's, of course, attracted an immense amount of hostility at the same time, which I think has been one of the complications. And it was a similar case with Amazon, wasn't it? You were a much earlier investor in that before it was across many people's radar. So what kind of stage was the company at when you invested it? Because it's now evolved into offering lots of different services and and kind of offerings. Yeah, well, we've were first buying Amazon back in 2004-05. And at that point, as you're, no, you're, you're both too young, but I will recall <laughs> that at that point people were still worried about its financial uh, <laughs> sustainability as well as its business model more generally. And certainly people were still debating whether it would be better to buy it or Barnes & Noble and other yeah. American booksellers would <laughs> subsequently disappear. I think in both cases uh, of Tesla and Amazon, this is in common with what we do around the world, we'd emphasize that we're really making two judgments about the potential scale of the market associated with deep underlying changes. So we can see that in the one case, uh, progress in Moore's law and the like was enabling Amazon to have a much greater set of opportunities than was once thought. And on Tesla's side, the progress in battery technology and in the background in solar technology was enabling um, Tesla to have great opportunities. So we look for huge opportunities that are almost unimaginable in their scale, certainly to, to how it's perceived at the time. And we look for management that we think is absolutely interested and obsessed by those opportunities thrown by it. We're not interested in management who sets targets for earnings in the next few months or is trying to do very marginal improvements. We're interested in the inspirational and the visionary. And I think that in those cases, we've been thrilled by what Mr. Bezos and Mr. Musk have done. So, I mean, with Amazon now, do you still have an idea of what it's still capable of doing but not yet doing now or is that the still unknown of <laughs> well I, I think it's a it's a really interesting question you know although we've been investors for what 15 years and although we have the opportunity to meet mr bezos and his colleagues pretty regularly i'm not sure we've got an awful lot more capable of really understanding what's next in his mind. I think we have to some extent because we get used to the cadence of the thought process. And I think, again, that you, I'll just emphasise that they're looking for huge areas of opportunity and they're perfectly willing to fail 
in various of them as a way of getting progress in, in a small number of them. I, I think one of the areas that's plainly been a surprise has been the whole opening up of the cloud opportunity, which is probably worth more in the stock market's mind than the traditional retail activities of Amazon, which is remarkable in itself. One area where we think they're finally beginning to make progress, which is very much thinking about the future than the, the, the present, is that we do think in food and grocery they've finally started to working out what their business model is, and plainly that meets what we need in terms of the potential scale of the opportunity. So what, what would you say that that's sort of working with um, a, a grocery companies will give them the food and, and essentially Amazon just be yeah. delivering? Is that what Well, I think it's more... I, I mean, I think we're now at the stage where for most of the internet giants, and this would certainly have a parallel in China with Alibaba, that you want a combination of physical retail very often enabled by technologies such as you, know, you can pick up your, your your good without having to get it scanned at the, at the end and all mm. your own picture is is, is, is is taken to help identify the customer. Uh, a mixture of that physical retail with technology with internet delivery. And it's an awful lot of it is about uh, whether you can find the right densities, the right cities, the right uh, technology for thinking about what routes you should be running in that. So I think it's it's better to think about it as a combination of traditional and the internet model. And we've talked about some kind of big success stories here in Tesla and Amazon, but if you're investing in these businesses that are doing large-scale change and disruption, there's obviously going to be some that don't manage to succeed in that or, or yep. don't see their value rise. How do you, um, as a manager, deal with those, partly in knowing when to sell and partly, I guess, from the emotional side that you talked about trying to take yeah. out of it? Yeah. I. So I think the first thing, and this plainly comes back to the emotional at a certain level as well as the analytical, is that you mustn't allow yourself to be unduly put off by the fact that you do have failures um, because the impact on your shareholders, if you cut out the possibility of astonishing success from the companies we invest in and get defensive about it is much worse than enduring those failures. But I think... I'd, 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 two elements that I apologize if it takes a moment but the, the first one would be we know that even in the most successful companies there are periods of failure and I think being supportive of management during those times is something that investors don't pay enough attention to they you know fund managers all go through periods where their investments are not working do they not realize this happens to companies and i think you know one of the things that we have is long-term commitment and we have trust in the people we do so very often we're trying to work through those periods in a sympathetic manner um i i think the other side of it was point I'd make is that you need to distinguish between what have been analytical and imaginative mistakes on our part and where simply the fact that you're living in a complex world doesn't work out. We should abandon where we've done bad analysis very quickly. We should accept that the world is complex and sometimes the answers are different you expect um, with a greater degree of tolerance and a greater degree of investment of time and energy. So I think it depends very much what type of mistake you're talking about there. So you've got um, exposure to China in the portfolio. What, what, what's your thinking about the coronavirus situation? Is this causing some potential problems to some of your 
companies in your portfolio short term, or is this the point where you need to be supportive and I, help them? I, I'm, I'm sure it is. Having short term problems, so you know, I'd be amazed if it if it wasn't. I mean, after all, we all see pictures yeah. of what's what's going on. And you know, I feel a lot of sympathy for my colleagues who are out in in Shanghai at the, the moment as well. But um, absolutely, it's a time frame one from our point of view. You know, we we absolutely believe and insist that the value of a company is the value of its long term free cash flows after necessary investment. Uh, the importance of any one quarter in that is not really all that great. And you know, I think. In most cases, you go to overreaction to short-term difficulties rather than underreaction. So, whilst we can think about whether this changes their long-run trajectory, we wouldn't be inclined to respond to the short-term. Now, I think it's a very open question in the long run as to whether that is, for all its human tragedy, a help or a hindrance to our companies. Uh, you know, very often. You see in periods of crisis, it happened in 2008-9 in narrowly economic terms, but it might well happen this time. It's the moment when societies and companies move on because people adjust to a new world. So, you know, for instance, you're always seeing in education, a lot of education going on at the moment mm. from home on the internet rather than um, in, in the traditional manner. And I think, you know, this could provide an extra leg forward for many of the internet type models that, that we see. I know some people have described it because lots of companies have shut down and people are having to work from home as the biggest homeworking experiment in modern day times. And so you think that we could learn some lessons from kind of changing practices like I, that? I mean, I, I think that's absolutely possible. I mean, my observation as, a, as my um, semi-trained historian would be that these periods of crisis are genuinely important in that way. And in a certain sense, you, you test the innovativeness, the adaptiveness of a society by how it responds in these things. And I don't mean responds on a day-to-day -day basis, but what the long-run implications are being. And, you know, I think your hypothesis may well be right, even if I don't want to be too definite about it at this moment. So I, I know I've certainly come across comments before from yourself and your sort of co-manager saying that Scottish Mortgage is not a tech fund, but clearly technology is very important to, to what you look at. Um, and how businesses embrace it. How do, how do you sort of spot, um, when you're looking perhaps at for sort of, um, up-and-coming companies with, with a great idea, how do you spot ones that are really good um, or ones that... Um, yeah. or, or, or aren't so good without you being an absolute expert in, in everything to do with technology? Uh, which I'm certainly not, <laughs> and I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, I, I think in many ways I've think what we're doing is companies enabled by technology so very often they have their own sense you know, there are very very few you know, really hard technology companies in our portfolio in fact you know uh, uh, I, I will though just uh, one example of one which definitely is which we find interesting as business investment but also is a way into our thought process so believe it or not the company in the world which probably does the hardest technology task um, certainly in relation to um, anything to do with Moore's Law, is ASML in Holland, which makes the lithography step as, um, printers for, 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 for these businesses, and without whom there could be no Moore's Law at the moment. They are monopolist. Now, I think, though, that it's very important, our relationship with them in giving us confidence that this can, as they put it, progress easily, which I find an ironic word, over the next 10 years. So. 
I think you then need to think more about the companies that have got the right mental attitude to it, to go back to what I was saying earlier about management and scale of opportunities. You know, the best guide to what we try and do is something that Jeff Bezos said at the time Amazon was going public, which was that there was this weirdness about its business, that everything got better or cheaper, better and cheaper, usually right around 50% every hour. And he paused and said, I don't know where this takes us, but I know it will be interesting, and gave a large guffaw of his <laughs> usual laughter, laughter of that. And I think that's the point. I don't think we can project the precise change, the precise what goes on. So go back to the Tesla example. We had worked for a long time and worked with a lot of serious academics about the underlying progress in batteries and solar, as I was saying. Now, at some point, that is going to turn into a competitive energy system. Um, you know, Mr. Musk will have very specific ideas of his own of that, but I think you're looking at not really predicting, but as seeing what's going on and you know, having clarity about where that's taken you in the moment. And I think that actually takes you a lot further than some of the more science fiction type projections on it you know we can see this real process of change already happening and examining how active entrepreneurs are thinking about the opportunity that throws up it is enough for us to be honest and are there are there so many sort of companies that interest you potential investments that um, you simply haven't got time to look at them all or is it quite easy to sort of narrow down the potential universe for you it's a it's a very interesting one that I you know I, I think way too many fund managers get involved in too many different situations where plainly you can't have the level of commitment to the mm. idea or the company to, to do it justice but to a certain extent if we are demanding about the scale of the opportunity at the inspiration level of the entrepreneurs marvelously the opportunity set does narrow itself. I mean, just imagine, going to be rude here, how much of the British stock market we instantly exclude for not having either of those two characteristics. Um, so, you know, I think there is a winnowing process just because of our disciplines in the first place. What I can say is that we're certainly finding no shortage of profound changes in the way industries and at that level technologies are working that are you know that we don't find enough that we can invest our capital in but we would want to keep it well below 100 in terms of the number of names and you know obviously there's also a big skew in terms of the size of the holdings which which matters to us and obviously last year was pretty tough for the ipo market and you invest in a lot of unlisted companies and i know that you've talked previously about uh, companies taking longer to come yeah. to floating on the stock market being a, an advantage for you. But are you concerned about um, things like we worked last year, I guess, and, and struggling to IPO? Are you concerned about any impact that might have on the portfolio or your ability um, to exit? Actually, rather the opposite. Um, if there was a dangerous period, it was three or four years ago when companies such as Uber and subsequently we work were able to raise any amount of money without really having a very clear plan as to what they were going to do with it. And I think that not so much was a worry in terms, we didn't have to buy the companies, we didn't, we rejected both companies. Um, we didn't have to own them, but I think it was distorting the economics in certain areas, which is not necessarily a good thing. But 
you know, I, I think that you would deal with such a small set and, you know, we accept that in our unquoted stocks that a large number of them will fail. But as long as you've got a small number of extreme successes, which we're reasonably confident is the case, um, then no, I'm not. And I think this is a deep structural change. And I think it's very foolish of whether it be the media, whether it be fund managers, or still more if it turns out to be regulators, that they cut back investment in this, because this is what real capitalism is about, is giving the start companies that can help our economies and our societies develop and you know we're very happy with where we are in the unquoted stocks from that point of view and the great privilege for us is that I, I think just about everywhere in the world we get fantastic access to these these entrepreneurs and these unquoted companies at a price if I may say this may add this at a cost to the shareholders that is way lower than any uh, traditional venture capital model <laughs> would allow to have. Mm. <laughs> well, brilliant. James, thank you ever so much for the insight into Scottish mortgage. Really great to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your time. And so finally, Savers were dealt another blow this week when NSNI, the government-backed savings provider, said it was slashing its savings rates again, and it's also making premium bonds less attractive. So Savers obviously had to suffer for quite a long time with very low rates on their cash savings, um, while inflation has been slightly higher, um, and lots of people invest their money in NSNI, um, and now they've announced that they're making another cut. Now, they made a cut previously um, that didn't go down very well, and now they're doing it again. Yeah, I imagine, because uh, there are a lot of people who put money in. Is it? It's, all these savings are... Um, Secured by the by the government. Yeah, it, so they're government back. So normally, yeah. with a with a bank account or cash savings account, you're protected by the financial services compensation scheme. So that protects you up to eighty five thousand pounds with each provider per person. Um, but with NSNI, all of your money is is protected by the government because it's a government back scheme. Um, so it means you can have above that limit and and it's still protected. So it means it is very attractive for people looking for a, a safe haven. Um, and and with premium bonds, you obviously you don't get paid an actual interest rate. You get put into a prize drawer each month and you have the chance of winning a million pounds. So lots of people, particularly at a point where cash rates are so low and say if you're in an account where you're only getting half a percent or a percent anyway, lots of people think, well, I can sacrifice that for the chance that I might win a million pounds or a hundred thousand pounds. But what they've done now with premium bonds is they've scaled down the prizes. So each month there's a certain number of each monetary value of prize. Um, they're keeping the fact that each month there's two people that become millionaires, so there's two million pound prizes. But after that, they've kind of dialed it down. So instead of there being six prizes of £100,000, there's five, for example. Instead of there being 12 prizes of £50,000, there's 11, um, and all the way down. So they've kind of dialed down the amount that you could win. So I saw someone describe premium bonds as saving savings products for dreamers not investors and i thought it's quite i mean it's 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 probably accurate but a bit cruel isn't it but i what i really have always hated about premium bonds is how national savings investments just give that figure as the sort of as if implied savings uh, rates. Yeah, so they so come up with this implied savings rate, which basically works out your probability of if you have a certain amount invested, your chance of winning a prize, what that prize would be and what that works out over the year. So it was like 1.4%. But yeah. obviously you, you could own them for decades and win nothing or win a measly 25 quid. It's true. Cause I think I think some people might think that as a worst case scenario, they're getting sort of like, you know, one point something percent 
uh, interest and best case is they become a millionaire but I know from experience having been I love um, how bitter you are about yes, your NSNI yeah. holdings so, so I've, I've had a premium bond which my parents gave to me when I was a little tiddler um, I've done one a single thing ever literally that's zero so and you've held that for at least 60 years. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, I mean, all joking aside, it's now, it, it's just annoying for savers, I think, that they saw this as a kind of potentially fun way to make some returns, even if it wasn't going to give you a, a massive inflation-beating rate. Um, and it's kind of another blow for them where they're really struggling to to find decent returns. So on that implied savings rate, it was previously 1.4% on premium bonds, and it's now 1.3%. And so previously you had a one in 24 and a half thousand chance of winning. Now you're going to have a one in 26,000 chance of winning. So it just means you're less likely to become a millionaire. Yeah. Sad news. (laughs) That's a sad note to end the podcast on, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know, you've been away for a few weeks. And and I just bring my doom and gloom. Returned with the misery. (laughs) Thank you ever so much for listening this week. As ever, if you have got any suggestions about future topics or comments, then drop us an email at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. You can listen to us via Spotify, the iPhone podcast app or Podbean and just search for Ajbell Money Markets. Thanks very much. See you next time. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.